You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Every year I get through about 50 or 60 books. I'm kind of a nonfiction junkie. And at the end of the year, I've had this routine now for the last, uh, I don't know, half dozen years of indicating what my top five favorite books of the year was. Last year, of that top five was a book called Dreamland by a guy named Sam Quinones. I was on Facebook a couple weeks ago. And some guy named Sam Quinones said, I like Strong Towns. And I thought, that can't be the same guy. It is the same guy. And I said, we should chat. So on the line with me today, I think from Los Angeles, although maybe you'll correct me on that one, I've got on the line the author of Dreamland, uh, journalist Sam Quinones. Sam, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Yes, thank you, Chuck. I am from Southern California. That's where I live. Okay. Is that where you're at right now? Yes, I am. That's right. You know, Southern California for a Minnesotan, especially when we, you know, we're we're getting into the fall and and early winter season. We had some snow this weekend, actually. Southern California becomes this magical place for us about this time of year, um, (laughs) where we just dream of like warm days and lots of sun. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's pretty much the way it is. But the problem is it's all year round. Uh, It gets very weird and ominous. When you have uh, 85 degree weather in January and February, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's, it leaves you feeling like something's wrong here. And uh, and also now we have fire season. That's I would say 12 months a year almost now. Right, right. You know, it used to be about six or eight. So yeah, that's that's crazy. That is that's very crazy. Very scary. I'm sure a lot of people do this with you when they have this conversation. Is they start with a personal story. I want to do a, a brief one just as a kickoff point. My dad had polio when he was a kid. And so his, his legs are really screwed up. One leg has like no meat on it at all. My whole life, it's about an inch and a half shorter than the other one. So his hips are screwed up. His back is screwed up. His knees are screwed up. He also got in a really bad accident. He worked at the paper mill and fell a couple stories off a machine. And, and that did not help the situation much at all. My entire life, this guy has been in tremendous amounts of pain. I remember, you know, days when he would take Tylenol three at a time, you know, three, four times a day uh, just to numb things out. I know he got to a point where he was taking some pretty like nasty, I don't know what they were, pain medication, but he would describe it to me and he'd say, I'd take one of these and it would kind of make me all woozy and wobbly in the legs. And then I'd have a little bit of time where like the pain was manageable. And then I'd have a couple hours when it was horrible before I could take the next one. When OxyContin came out, and I remember this was like the late 90s, maybe like 98 or something like that, when he first, his doctor first prescribed it, he gave me the whole commercial. This is time release, 24 hours. I don't have the highs. I don't have the the lows. Uh, They're managing my pain. I remember having this like warm, happy feeling about OxyContin as like maybe this was going to really be something that helped my dad. I want to start with that commercial. There's some reason why we have this that was, if we want to give it the most righteous way, was like a, a positive thing, right? Yes, Can correct. you start with that? Because I, I think that maybe is like the best place to begin. What has happened is there are many people who might make a great use, like your father, of opioid painkillers, narcotic painkillers, and have a very severe pain that these pills work for. The problem became that um, it wasn't then just those folks or just terminal cancer patients that these pills became were marketed for. As time went on, there grew this belief that these pills were uh, virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain on virtually any person in any circumstance, no matter how long the dose goes on, that kind of thing. And, and we began to, as a country, this, this dovetailed, I think, a lot with our, our feeling as, a, as Americans, as a, increasingly as a culture, that we wanted all of our pain fixed. And I'm not talking necessarily about your father who has this very life-mangling pain. It's a very different thing. 
But there was this idea that we wanted all our inconveniences and all our, you know, doctors would say I would get I would get uh, visits from patients who were demanding um, antibiotics for uh, for symptoms of the common cold, you know, th this kind of thing, or or uh, opioids for ankle sprains when really what you need is to put your leg up and put ice on it and wait for four, three, four, five days, and that's it, you know. And so we got into a situation where. Pills that, that are, in fact, very appropriate for certain limited circumstances and certain limited situations and, and personal backgrounds, health backgrounds, uh, became prescribed for almost everything in large, large doses, almost with unlimited doses, in fact. And so people would, be, would go into uh, surgery routine surgery, appendix removal or something. And uh, the pain for that is going to last three days, four days. I know that I, because I had one, uh, my appendix removed uh, um, not long ago, a few years ago. And they would be given bottles of pills, narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers to take home with them uh, for, you know, 30 days worth of pills, plus a refill, plus a second refill, if they were persistent enough. And, and that led to a lot of problems. The other, the other issue that grew out of this was that chronic pain patients, uh, some of them, like your father, it may be that there, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, uh, convinced that there are some people for whom these pills are lifesavers and the only solution out there. I do think a lot of pain, uh, chronic pain, having talked to pain specialists in this, a lot of pain patients would be helped by a wide a variety of, of strategy, pain strategies. A little bit of pain pill, a few pain pills, you know, some dose daily, smallish, but also exercise, um, acupuncture, tai chi, diet, physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, marital counseling, job counseling. I mean, there's a variety of things that go into what create a chronic pain. And for a long time, for the last 20 plus years, I think chronic pain patients too have been sold a bill of goods on this saying that the only thing that will work is are these pills and a lot of them that without really. And so a lot of insurance companies backed off reimbursing for them. So doctors really have had for the last 20 years when it comes to the chronic pain, it's really only one option. Um, that does not is not to say that that there are some people for whom these pills are absolutely necessary and in, in the right dose and that kind of thing. But as a culture, it's almost like the last 20 years, that's what I was trying to write in, in, in Dreamland, the story of how we went from a country almost didn't use this medicine at all to now the greatest consumer of, of opioid painkillers by far in the entire world within a matter of 20 years and which has led um, to some uh, good outcomes, sounds like with your father, but then also some very scary, catastrophic outcomes all across the country. And you're seeing that in our overdose death rates today. I'd like to talk about the doctor relationship first. It did seem like, you know, for my dad, that he was on like the cutting edge, right? Well, like one of the early ones and probably one of the ones that if you think of the marketing ad, you would naturally target. I think you're right. My dad, part of managing his pain that he is, you know, not wanted to address is just, you need to rest, dude. Like you can't, you can't go mow the yard with a, with a push mower when you got five acres to mow. I mean, you might have to hire the neighborhood kid. You got to do things like that. You're 70 years old, you know, like you, you got to change some of your lifestyle, but I'm interested in how these pharmacy companies approach the doctors and started this societal change in how we approach these things. And a lot of that stems from another revolution. We had a revolution in pain management that held, as I said, that opioid painkillers were virtually non-addictive, that there was no uh, real risk if you're a pain patient to taking these, and, and therefore doctors could prescribe them in huge amounts uh, for a very long time Sam, and there, there would be, does it, isn't that crazy though? When you explain that in the book, there's a part of me like going in my mind, these are medical professionals. They're not like, you know, suckers and, in a sense. And these are drugs that, uh, were derived eventually from the opium poppy, <laughs> right. which is the plant that we've best known. And as a, as a species, uh, was our first medicine really longest lasting medicine. The one we've, we've used as a medicine longest, but, you know, at the same time that that was happening, that was all helped by a change, a revolution in pharmaceutical sales as well. And this was crucial to the story, too, that 
that for many years, pharmaceutical salesmen, and they were almost all men, had essentially two things in common. Most of them, almost all of them, had backgrounds in pharmacy or medicine. They weren't really even hired if they didn't have that. So they knew what they were talking about, and they had spent a career already by the time they got to sales dealing with this. And they knew they had background, and they were a reputable, credible source of information. The other was that they were mostly from the community. They didn't move around a lot, and 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 they were they were at the churches and at the schools or at the Friday night football games or the Chamber of Commerce. So you, you knew them, basically. And there was a, a relationship that developed between doctor and pharmaceutical salesman that actually was very, very helpful because medicine was now beginning to change very quickly, far too fast for, for uh, doctors to keep up. And they needed a credible source of information on how these pills might work. This kind of, these guys became that source. They were very cognizant of maintaining, by and large, doctors I've talked to said the guys that I used to deal with back then, this would be in the 80s or so, would and before were very cognizant of not like abusing their their position because they lived in the area and they had needed the credibility and word spread once one doctor found that I, I was uncredible well then everybody found that out and so my business would suffer and so there was this accountability built into the profession in the 1990s was exactly when oxycontin comes out and this thing really this revolution in pain management really begins to build a key part of it was that there was also at the same time revolution pharmaceutical sales. Pharmaceutical companies were now hiring. There was a, what you might call an, a, a pharmaceutical uh, sales force arms race. So everybody hiring more and more and more sales folks. So we started that decade, 1993, I think the figure is something like we had something like 35,000 pharmaceutical sales reps in, in the entire United States. By the end of that decade, we had 100,000 plus. We had actually 102 thousand sales reps by the year 2000, early 2001. It wasn't these older guys. They were all kind of shown the door, allowed to retire, got the message and left. And the new folks who came in were all really young. They had no background in medicine. They had no background in pharmacy. They didn't know what they were selling, but they all knew how to sell. They were all from sales backgrounds now. So they were from enterprise rent-a-car or, you know, computer gadget companies or a variety of things. They, most of them were just a job or two out of college. There was a lot of women. All of them were very, very good looking. And they were begin to be paid bonuses that were unheard of in the pharmaceutical uh, industry up to that uh, up to that time. And they, so they didn't know what they were selling. They did know how to sell it. And they would they would inundate just inundate doctors. It grew to be, one doc said, I was getting 10 visits a week, say, and now it was 10 visits, 12 visits a day. I didn't know who these people were. They were just endless. And and that was a big part of them. For, Purdue was part of that. It wasn't, however, the biggest part. I mean, other companies had far greater sales forces by the end of that decade. Purdue had 1,000. Pfizer had 12,000. But Purdue was the only one, or one of the few, I should say, selling uh, the, whose main focus, and there's the main focus, was to sell uh, opioid, a narcotic painkiller, in this way, and sell it using uh, uh, sales gimmicks, a bit, a very hard sell, a lot of pressure on the dock, a lot of giveaways, a lot of bringing the lunch, bringing lunch for the staff. Because if you, here's the thing, you bring lunch for the staff all the time, like every month, every couple of weeks, whatever, and pretty soon the staff loves you. And if the staff loves you, the doctor is going to be very easy to deal with, putty in your hands. And so part of the way that whole thing changed, the whole relationship between the companies and the doctor changed was because of this pharmaceutical sales force arms race. You know, it's interesting because in the long run, it really was uh, poisoned, the relation. Now, uh, they've cut back on that significantly. There's under, I think there's something like 80,000 sales reps now in the United States from drug companies. But crucial in all this is that doctors, I read a, I read a journal report uh, in some, uh, some medical journal that said that now almost 50% of all doctors won't even allow them in the office. That's a huge change. Used to be every doctor would welcome them. But, and it's bad for docs too because medicine continues to change. They need that source of information. And now that credible source of information that they used to rely on is no longer there for, for a lot of them. And a lot of them don't believe whatever these guys tell them anyway. There's this change that's taken place, but a lot of it, this was a big way that doctors 
back in the 90s now, in the early 2000s, grew convinced through the sales efforts of, of a lot of these folks that these pills now needed to be used very aggressively and, and, and without really any limit on dose and people could get refills over and over. That really is how that all, all, all changed because of this explosion in the number of, of Salesforce people. At some point, they figured out that the product wasn't working as advertised. They started to figure out that it wasn't 24-hour <laughs> slow release. You get your dose at one time. It was fascinating to me where you described they would just say up the dose, like up the dose, up the dose, up the dose. I don't know if we want to call this illegal. I know that there's been some some oversight fines and other things that have been paid. It did seem like there was, if nothing else, a certain level of disconnect between the people who would have designed and tested a product like this and the people who were marketing it and the people who were then administering it and using it. This culture change, which, which is exactly what it was, a cultural change that took place with regard to doctors and their use of opioid painkillers, took place in a relatively short period of time. It was a revolution, really, uh, that took place between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s. So, you know, 93 to 90 to 2005 or 6. And by then, uh, medical schools were teaching it. All the major institutions, the VA had adopted the idea. A lot of major medical institutions were were right behind it. And doctors, a lot of them, a lot of them, I could say fairly reluctantly, had to go along. There was a lot of threats of lawsuit if you don't treat people's pain. This change took place in fairly short order, but it was pretty complete. It was like almost coast to coast. You know, you didn't see too many people uh, going against this. Um, and, and the people who did were sometimes uh, very easily silenced by drug companies, threats of lawsuit and that sort of thing. But yes, at some point, um, and it, this began fairly early on uh, in my my research, I think one of the first places that began to point this out were, was the um, workers' comp organization in the state of Washington. They were one of the first because they have an enormous they, – they, they insure most workers in, in I think two-thirds of all workers in Washington state. And they began to see people dying of opioid overdoses who had gone into the workers' comp system for a bad back. And all of a sudden – and two years later, they'd be dead. And so they were one of the first to figure this out, like in the 2001, roughly. But it took some time because the culture was had changed completely. It was almost like no one dared say anything, you know. And I think it was it didn't help that that this was a fairly silent epidemic. People who had addicts in the family didn't tend to make a make a stink about it. They didn't tend to be they wanted to be private. They want they were ashamed, and so you had a lot of that. So you didn't have a lot of public pressure, except for in certain areas. Certain areas very clear that this was going on. There was West Virginia being one, Ohio being another. But um, all across the country, you didn't see this a lot because people would have addicts in the family and be quiet about it. They'd be uh, ashamed. But I think increasingly doctors began to see this. There just was a, a silence, though, uh, surrounding this that it really has not broken um, I found it myself. You know, I was writing this book in 2013, 14. It was very difficult to find people to talk to, particularly family members uh, of loved ones, you know. And so now, of course, book come out in 2015 and now you're seeing, you know, lawsuits. And, and that's what I think we're going to find from all these lawsuits brought by counties, by states, by native tribes, by cities and so on, that, that we're going to find what exactly – all the, de the depths to which these companies knew what they were doing, how much they knew, and when they knew it. You know, what did they know and when did they know it, according to the Watergate phrase? I think increasingly we're going to find, we're going to find that out. There's already been some very interesting allegations um, and, and I would say evidence display uh, uh, put out there by some of these lawsuits. So we're going to see that. But yeah, there was this culture of the, the sales people were making a ton of money. The new doctors were being taught this in medical school. There was a, a general feeling like, also, I have to say this, Americans, again, wanted to be fixed. We wanted our pain taken care of. We didn't want to actually have to work at it, you know, so uh, change our behavior, stop eating this, stop smoking, walk more, all that kind of stuff. That didn't really fit in who we were. We, we wanted easy. We wanted quick. You know, and so all of that kind of was was part of this story. I remember as a kid growing up, I've always been like really healthy. The only problems I've ever had was with my teeth. I 
<laughs> in a bunch of different like dumb things smashed up almost all all my front teeth in my mouth. And when you deal with teeth thing, there's a lot of pain that goes along with it. And I remember the dentist being like, come on, just suck it up, kid. Like, you know, get tough. And that's part of that culture shift, isn't it? The idea that not just as a society that this is what we wanted, but we were actually telling doctors for a period of time here that that you're being inhumane or, or unethical if you don't take the patient's declaration of their pain and suffering seriously. That was a big way in which doctors kind of came around because they had they felt an economic pressure from us, you know? And and there was, I, I remember one doc talking to one, one guy, he says, you know, there was a time in which everything shifted. Uh, before the mid-90s, I think, the patients were far more stoic. They wouldn't come to see me as much as they even should have, I thought, uh, because they just wouldn't want to think that people were complaining and they were, you know. I grew up on a farm. I remember my grandpa, like, rub some dirt on it. You know, let's go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Precisely. That's exactly it. And, and in time, that changed. And pro- probably a little bit of change would, it was in order, but then it wasn't a little bit of change. It was like every little thing, you know. And now, um, I'm, I'll tell you, speaking of dental work, um, I would say one of the biggest causes of, of overdose deaths is addiction to opioids or heroin, now fentanyl, of course, that's a whole other story, but that's the addiction that starts with people getting their wisdom teeth out and being given enormous bottles of painkillers for pain that literally, again, is going to last two, three, four days. It's not going to be longer than that. And yet doctors were giving 60 Percocet, 60 Vicodin, 60 Oxycontin, whatever it was, uh, because they just feared their patient ever feeling pain and calling them up to complain or finding another dentist or letting people know, hey, that guy really just left me in horrible pain when really, you know, the truth is it was bearable. You know, ibuprofen would have been probably good. I'm reading now uh, dental stories in, in dental journals that say, well, actually, ibuprofen is probably good enough for most 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 wisdom tooth extractions. But I've seen at literally at least 12 cases of parents coming to me saying my kid died. And the addiction started with that first bottle of painkillers after he got his wisdom tooth out. I want to give you a chance to talk about, and I don't know if you had a name for it, but like the pill labs. Um, yeah, the pill mills. The pill mills. Can, can you just describe that? Because I, I feel like that is the, the outer edge of absurdity where, you know, the, the doctor is struggling with this ethical question of pain management versus get tough or what have you. And doing the right thing. That's something I think we can relate to. Well, what to. ended up happening was with this idea that Americans cannot handle pain, with this idea that there, that, that there was a new way of treating pain and, and it didn't involve hard work on our part. Really, it was just like pills. Boom, you're done. There grew up, they probably had existed before that, but really not nearly in the number before, pain clinics. Now, some of these were very legitimate and run by people who would give you MRIs, they go to some great length to diagnose, they would have a variety of options or variety of approaches. But increasingly, a lot of those pain clinics became just reliant on pills. You'd come in, you'd get your thing, your, your diagnosis, and you would get a prescription. Most of the time, you get a prescription for narcotic painkillers at, at a certain point. You know, by the late 1990s, I think that was pretty much the case. There was a lot of money in those pain clinics, and a lot of doctors got seduced. And so, what started out as a legitimate pain clinic, sometimes they remain legitimate. And I'm not saying all pain clinics are like this. I'm just saying that this seemed to be a tendency in pain clinics where after a while, the pain uh, clinic would become more and more lenient, less and less diagnosis, more uh, demanding patients. The more the patients figure out, who are, particularly who are addicted and who are looking for easy sources of pills, they, they figure out that you're an easy touch you're going to get a lot of those guys. And they are going to be demanding, insistent, wheedling, cajoling, crying, begging, on and on. At a certain point, a lot of those uh, clinics, the, the most notorious ones, began taking only cash, no insurance. So you had to pay 250 bucks a, a month every time you came in. And, and, and at a certain point, a lot, a lot of those clinics, particularly in certain areas, became 
dispensers of prescriptions and really almost nothing more. You'd have a minute and a half to three minutes with the doc, nothing more. There was no MRI anymore. There was no pretense at pain diagnosis and working with you on how to deal with this. Rather, it was just, you know, the long lines, people from different counties, different states. Um, it became a cash cow. This, these, these, and this happened. The story that I tell is about the, the guy who invented that business model in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio. And uh, he was not the first one to begin prescribing heavily, but he was the first one to begin hiring other doctors to run the clinic for him. And then they saw the business and they began then to set up their own clinic. So one guy referred to him as like kind of the Ray Kroc of um, pain clinics, you know, that the once doctors worked for him, they saw, wow, this is a huge amount of money involved here. And all I have to do is prescribe these pills and uh, you get lines out the door. The waiting room is always full. And that's what began to happen. So from his clinic, many doctors came and then started out there, started their own. So, so the business model kind of exploded. This would have been early, late 1990s, beginning and then early, early 2000s. And it starts in southern Ohio, but then it's also in Kentucky, West Virginia. And then the next place it explodes is in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Broward County uh, in Florida. And that is largely because people in that area that I first mentioned, West Virginia, Kentucky, Southern Ohio, the Appalachian regions, went looking for doctors who were amenable. They ran out at sometimes of doctors and pharmacists that they could find. And so the stories I've, I've been told by people who lived this were that they were working down in Florida. They found that Florida didn't really keep any records. And, and the doctors didn't really care. And so they began to go to Florida. And so was, you get these caravans after a while. In Broward County, I think there was like, oh, I can't remember the exact number. I think there was like 15 pain clinics in 2005. And by 2007, there was 200 pain clinics in Broward County, all of them dispensing pills, most of them to people from that area. And so it became a business model that exploded and people began to figure it out. And you began to see this in less intense numbers in other parts of the country. And now that business model has largely been shut down because a lot of those doctors went to jail or lost their license. And uh, people are more chased, chastened by this whole experience. But the early 2000s were just kind of like the pill mill thing. And, and, and a lot of those doctors got seduced, again, by the money, sometimes by the easy sex with their patients. Um, sometimes by the pills themselves and got addicted themselves. And so it was, a, it was a, just a, a complete hive of uh, dysfunction, the typical pill mill. So now enter heroin. Growing up for me, heroin was like the, the scary thing that like the really messed up people did. Yeah, and you never went around anybody who did heroin. Yeah, absolutely. I remember reading once, because I was a huge Beatles fan, that John Lennon had done heroin. And I remember being like really sad about that. Like, oh my gosh, this guy was really messed up at some point. And just being like kind of sickened by it. Heroin became the answer for many people. Right. And that is because the drugs in these pills, in Oxycontin and in Vicodin and Percocet, there's two principal opiate painkillers derived eventually synthesized, but eventually derived from the opium poppy. One is oxycodone, which is an oxycontin. The other is hydrocodone, which is in Vicodin, some others. These drugs are chemically very similar to heroin because they are derived. They're molecularly very similar to heroin because they're derived from the opium poppy, as is heroin, as is codeine, as a variety of things. Again, many drugs have been derived from opium. We've done an enormously effective job of deriving every possible drug out of this one plant's goo. Eventually, you get you get these these painkillers that are very similar, and so so you get addicted to those painkillers. And you have the same effect that heroin creates. You get intense euphoria. The longer you use it, the more chance you have of being addicted. And this is where the the, the, the refills are very, very important. It can it prolongs people's exposure to these things. When you try to go off them, you get you get withdrawals, you get the same shivering, diarrhea, sweating, can't sleep, all that kind of stuff. So with a with an enormous supply blasted at the country every year for the last 20 plus years. A lot of that supply leaked out and created a black market. So you have black markets in mo- of the, on the street for, the, for these pills in most areas of the country. On the street, they cost a dollar a milligram, much more expensive than in, from a prescription. And a lot of people were by that point on 
150, 200, 300 milligrams a day, mostly because of OxyContin. OxyContin, a big, big, more, more powerful than all the other drugs, took their addiction up to very, or their dependence up to very high levels. They, the doctor may, maybe would freak out, start say, oh my God, cut them off. Oh, what am I done? Well, I've created an addict. Oh my God, so stop. Or they lose their insurance. That's another pathway to it. Or sometimes they just wanted to get higher and, and they began to look around for something that was cheaper, and as, as potent, if not more so. And that's when it run into, ran into a, a big change that also happened in, in our heroin market. Our heroin market had also been revolutionized in the 1980s. And our heroin market, most of our heroin came through New York. And it came through New York because it came from the Far East. And that was Turkey and Burma and French Connection dope and all that stuff. Well, that dope got here all very, very expensive and very weak because it had to come from so far away. But in the 1980s, Latin American heroin changed all that. Coming up from Colombia, the Colombian cartels that, that focused on hair, on cocaine, but also heroin was part of their mix as their product offering as well. Mexicans were also doing this. They weren't as sophisticated yet, but they were certainly doing this as well. They All of these guys kind of brought a cheaper and far more potent heroin to the United States and outcompeted all that other heroin come from the Far East. So now, today, really... The vast lion's share of our heroin comes from, from Latin America, and today it's almost all from Mexico, really. But that heroin is much cheaper than the pills, and as potent, sometimes it's far more potent than those pills. And it became a perfect thing to segue to. If you were spending $150, $200 a day on pills on black market, now you could spend 50 and it became, quote, the no-brainer, as I was told a couple of times. <laughs> it just it makes no, no sense to, to not do this. And that's, that's kind of what happened. It was a, a shift that began very early. People want to focus on the last five to seven years. My feeling is I began to see, I've, I've known people who began to make that shift in 98, 99. Very soon after getting addicted to the pills, they made the shift to heroin. And it's been kind of gradually increasing, increasing. And, and we basically awakened the Mexican market. The Mexican heroin producer market was pretty limited Mostly they want to deal in marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamine, but heroin is viewed with as much antipathy as we view it here in the United States, and not more so. And for a long time, the heroin market is very limited. But as we began to create more and more and more opiate addicts every year, and a lot of those people began to switch to heroin, it awakened the folks down in Mexico who were involved in that world. And, and more and more people got involved and began to say, oh, my God, this is huge. This is a big market now. This is this is uh, my God, what's going to happen? So more and more and more people got into it. The production expanded. And then they discovered uh, how fentanyl could be prof enormously profitable, too. We can talk about that later. But but basically, the switch to heroin comes after people are at their wits end, paying way too much, having the, the same withdrawal symptoms. And it's that beast of an addiction that they're dealing with that gets them over the feeling that they would never do heroin. They would never inject a needle into their veins. And pretty soon they're, they say, no, 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 I never do that. And pretty soon they are because the, that addiction is a beast. I think one of the things that your book really helped me get over was this vision of the, the heroin addict as someone you'd find in, in a dark alley. The transaction happening in some dark alley somewhere, some drug den, you know, with a bunch of unsavories, a bunch of people with, you know, heavily armed. Can you talk a little bit about, because I, I feel like there was this other revolution that happened too in the marketing and distribution of this illegal drug. In order to understand that, think of who is getting addicted. It's people with access to doctors, people with access to health insurance. I would say that eventually, when you're addicted to heroin, you end up in the way that you just described, you know, and living under an overpass and a tent, basically a slave to the dope. But you don't start out that way. Many, many people did not start out. First of all, a lot of, a lot of them are working. A lot of them are, uh, you know, again, they're workers' comp patients, a lot of these guys. Uh, they're people who are going in, they have health insurance, they have probably fairly stable lives, and, and they're getting addicted and uh, some portion of them, some percentage of them, slowly, sometimes quickly slide into uh, very severe addiction. And that's when it begins to take over their lives and, and they lose everything. They lose family, house. They end up in a halfway house and, and you know, uh, or, or uh, under an overpass. 
somewhere. But but yeah, you're right. It, it deals with you're dealing with um, people who really didn't have any connection to the drug underworld before they go to the doctor. Right. And the doctor gives them this and, and doesn't ask them, by the way, uh, what's your background? You know, do you have any addiction in your family? Is your grandfather an alcoholic? Do you ever, yeah, how do you smoke marijuana? Do you, you know, all these none of that ever got asked. It was just, you know, fine, pills for everybody, you know. And then the guys that I wrote about, the Mexican guys that I wrote about were from one small town, not a huge number of heroin traffickers in Mexico, um, but there were some. And these, this group was among them. Uh, they figured out that if we sell uh, heroin and sell convenience o- along with heroin, there'll be a big market for that. A, a, a addicts prize convenience. So they devised a system. These guys from this one town called Jalisco in the state of in the small state of Nayarit on the Pacific coast in Mexico, develop a system for selling heroin very much like you might consider uh, pizza uh, delivery. You know, you call up, you call an a- operator. The operator has several drivers, takes your order. I need five balloons of heroin. I'm standing in the Target parking lot or whatever. He has several drivers driving around with balloons in the car, in their mouths, or both. And they go and they meet you, one of them, dispatches one of them, they, and they, you, you, you meet the guy, you spit out, he spits out five balloons for you, you give him the money, you're on your way. And this business model was especially effective when it dealt with heroin addicts because, first of all, heroin addicts are daily customers. You cannot say one day, I think I'm not going to use today. You know, that's not – that's not what's happening with heroin. You you have to use everything. But then also, they were selling convenience. They're, the addict's biggest fear is, where am I going to get my dope today? Well, now you know. You call a number and you wait uh, by the uh, by the Burger King or by the, the thrift store or whatever, and pretty soon uh, they're going to send you some. And, and, so, and you also know these guys were very good about – the more they got into it, the more refined the system get, became about making sure that every do- dose was the same. It was not like wide differences and you, they were not going to be robbed. And, you know, it's much better than having to traipse all over town, go to some seedy motel, some seedy, you know, skid row uh, corner and try to buy your dope. That way is so much easier. And this system, they began to spread um, all across the, the West and they came to they went across the, the Mississippi River and landed in Columbus, Ohio, by pure chance. Total coincidence. At the very moment when this pain revolution uh, was underway and the expansion of the pills was going on in that very area in central and southern Ohio. And so they land just as they find and find that there is an enormous new number of addicts that did not exist in Salt Lake or Reno or Portland or Albuquerque, where they had come from, or San Fernando Valley of California, Southern California. And so they begin to say, whoa, if we just follow the pills – we will make they, we'll make more money than we ever could back back then. Pretty soon, of course, the pills are nationwide. But when they arrive, it's really kind of just beginning. And they're the first ones. They're important to this story, not because they're the only heroin traffickers from Mexico, because there are a lot of those, but because they are the first ones to see, recognize, and then systematically exploit the common market for heroin, that widespread, indiscriminate, massive prescribing of pain pills promises to, to create. And that's where their importance to the story lies. And they, and they and it's simply because one of the guys who I interviewed many, many times, nine times, I think I interviewed this guy, just figured it out. He arrived in Columbus and goes, oh my God, this is very different. This is not like where I, I came from Portland. I came from Reno. Um, I came from San Fernando Valley. Those markets there are pretty static. This is a burgeoning. This is growing. It is so because of those dr- those pills contain drugs that are very, very similar chemically, molecularly to heroin. When I read the book, I was struck by how genius these guys were at adapting their approach to the white middle class. You say it's like ordering a pizza, but even that, they're not driving around with guns. They've got little balloons in their mouths, and if a cop ever pulled them over for something, they just swallow them, and there's really no probable cause at that point. This seems like it was like perfectly adapted to, and I think they figured that out. There yeah. was nobody who wrote a manual at the beginning. They figure out if you do this, you get caught. So let's do the opposite. If you if you're if you're an illegal immigrant and you have a, a gun in the car, you're going to get ten years in prison. If you're an illegal immigrant with a little bit of dope, they're going to deport you. So what are you going to do? Also, these guys were were not. It's important to understand too that this system was not based on cartel lines. It was not a bunch of killers. 
people looking to become the next Scarface. These were a bunch of guys who were from normal occupations who just simply saw that those occupations were leading nowhere and they were not allowing them to buy a house or a car or get a girl to marry them. Uh, they were butchers. They were bakers. They were avocado farmers, sugarcane farmers, variety of job, construction workers, variety of jobs like that that in Mexico lead nowhere. Okay, they, those are the, the, the definition of dead end dead end jobs. Heroin allows you to buy land, be admired, give away gifts. Uh, when you go home, uh, um, girls flock to you. That's a big narcotic, I'd say, big attraction, you know? And so they began, a lot of guys in this one area, in this one county, this one town, but then there was a bunch of villages nearby in the same county where guys are also got into this. They, they began to figure this out. You know, it's like, wow, I can make, I can get ahead. They're not killers, though. So the idea that they were going to go into, they never went to, for example, New York City or Baltimore, two very, very notorious uh, developed uh, heroin markets. Because why? Because there's guys with guns there, man. Those are, those are developed markets. Why do I want to try to fight my way in there? Why not Cincinnati? Why not Charlotte, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Memphis, Lexington, Louisville? Uh, Columbus, of course, uh, Toledo, Pittsburgh, all these different areas where, where, and, and not, that's just on the on west of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi. Think about the, all the other markets. So why do I really want to like shoot my way into the Baltimore market? That's that's crazy. I'm not about that. I want to make my money. I want to send it all home. I don't want to spend anything I don't have to spend in this country. I want to send it all home to mom, buy some land, buy a new used truck have all the girls want to talk to me and be a guy of respect. And that's what so many of those guys did. It was, and every, every, you could see it every, every August, they have a, uh, uh, an annual fiesta fair that goes on at the corn festival in, in this little town. And it's like a convention of heroin dealers. And that, and that time I went to there, I went there once, uh, for, uh, and it was just like everybody spending their money, acting like the big shot, you know, girls hanging on them. One guy, one guy I remember walking along with like two or three women on each arm. I mean, really like that. It was like, it was an amazing scene in one plaza. See, the big, the big thing you want to be able to do is you go and you hire the banda. The banda is, uh, a banda is in Mexican terms, a band that plays marching band instruments, snare drum, clarinet, tuba, et cetera. But they play dance music. It's very, very, very popular in Mexico. And it's a sign of having arrived when you can pay the banda to play songs for you in the plaza and you sit there dancing with your girlfriend with a six pack uh, hanging from your finger and a plastic ring, you know. And I saw that over and over. And so you'd see in a plaza maybe the size of like uh, two or three, uh, maybe like six or eight houses uh, on an American uh, street you would see 15 bandas, all marching band instruments, all playing different songs all at the same time for different guys who would hire the banda, you know, their bandas and, and wanted to show off for their friends and have everybody be their friend for the for the evening. Uh, it was a remarkable scene uh, when you see all those because they don't spend their money here. Those guys were very clear. They wanted to spend their money back there and be the king back home. They didn't really care about being the king here in the United States. So they don't want to shoot it up with anybody. You know, I spent a little bit of time in the army. I was in the guard for nine years. There's this like tour of duty kind of mentality, right? Like you go do your time, then you come back and they pay for college and they, you get a bonus and uh, you got a little bit bigger muscles. <laughs> it it felt that respect. way, right? Exactly. You, you got, you got some respect. You got some, you know, you're feeling like you're better off now than you were before you left. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a common trait in humans. We all want to go back home where people look down on us and we want to come back the big shot, the king, the whatever. It's a common thing. Let me ask you a couple of Strong Towns questions. Th this book really resonated with me. And I found myself wanting to kind of delve into some related things. The first one being, I just like your opinion on the general isolation of our development pattern as kind of a a force multiplier here. It's kind of like a, a magnifier of this issue. I, I just, I'm interested in your impressions on that. Yes. I, I've thought this for a long time that, that, um, and this, I began to, began to come to these ideas when, as it related to, to this epidemic in the middle of my, my, my research that, that so much about our life today, our lives as Americans today is, is, uh, so isolated. It's like we took the concept of the individual and self-reliance and, and just sent it to the far extreme. And so now you have 
um, neighborhoods where nobody goes outside and you don't really know anybody. And this is not just in a few places. It's really all across the country. So common, you know, and that's what we point to as prosperity. Look at these, these uh, beautiful suburbs. You know, you drive along, there's nobody on the street. The, the houses are buttoned up. You don't see anybody walking around, nobody playing. The parks are empty. I think this was part of what made this epidemic so potent. When these pills arrived, they arrived like gasoline on a fire already going. It just exploded uh, because so much of our life is isolated. And I believe suburban development, um, the abandonment of, of the town, the abandonment of community facilities, which is why I chose Dreamland, the swimming pool as the title for the book. Dreamland is the title of the book because it refers to a swimming pool in in a town of Portsmouth, Ohio, where the pill mill began and all that, uh, that was the town plaza. That was where everyone saw each other. You grew up together. You, you were watched by hundreds of parents to make sure you didn't screw up. Um, you made sure you didn't screw up because you would get banned from the pool and that would be the worst punishment of all. You had your first kiss. You had maybe lost your virginity out there in the, in the, in the, the fields uh, surrounding the pool. Then your kid began and, and her life started in the, in the shallow end just like yours had. It was, it was a place where people came together. It was very cheap. It was where people lost all class identity. I mean, basically, everybody looked the same in, in swimming trunks, right? So it didn't matter if you were a worker or the, or the mayor. All of this kind of went away. We began to think that the best idea was um, that we all needed to just kind of hole up in our houses, that this became the prize, the premium, the, the, the goal to, to achieve. And um, we began to be, believe that government was the problem. Government was a curse, uh, a, a dull, bumbling, a waste of our tax money. Therefore, not paying taxes was some kind of patriotic act, you know. So all of this kind of led to, I think, what ended up happening was, was we became more isolated. We defunded or lost the infrastructure that brought us out of our houses, brought us together. Everybody now had a pool. You know, so we didn't. Why do we need to support the the, the town swimming pool? That that kind of thing. We just didn't fund them anyway. We never. We built towns that had no center, that had no place for people to come. And I really believe that what's happening now, as you see people migrate in huge numbers, and I don't know the figures, but it's just sort of amazing uh, to see. I think the huge numbers of people now migrating back to the cities the city centers, I believe that's a direct reaction to this. People feeling like we spent so much money buying expensive houses back out where nobody knows us. Then we have to drive every day, 45 minutes, one way to get to one place of work and then drive back the same way. They're turning away from that isolating uh, work. And now the suburbs are faced with a conundrum that the cities had years and years ago, which is how to retain people, what to do with the infrastructure that's been built up that was fine for the 1970s or 80s or 90s, but now in the, the second decade of the 21st century, it doesn't really seem to work. No, no longer the, the mall, the malls are failing. They're being replaced by office space now or whatever. But I think that, that, that our attitudes regarding living alone uh, were just taken to such a far extreme. And that, frankly, I believe was a crucial um, element, one of many, but certainly a crucial element in why this spread. People were didn't know each other. They'd get a kid addicted in their family. They didn't know neighbors well enough to say, you know, I'm in trouble. They were ashamed. Uh, there was no feeling of community that people would come together behind you to help you out. And so people made horrible mistakes with their kids. And the kids died sometimes or were, the addiction was prolonged when maybe it didn't need to be. Um, you're seeing all that. So it's, it, it really dawned on me in the middle of this book that what I was actually – I thought I was writing a book about drug trafficking and drug marketing. And then it became clear to me that there was many, many more issues involved in this and it got into our own – isolation as Americans. And when it got into that, it got into how we viewed government, how we viewed the role of government, taxes, and the kind of development that we we spawned or promoted or, or, or wanted to buy. And now you're seeing that change. It seems like we have a binary response to, and I'm interested in, in what you think about this, 
it feels like part of our population thinks this is an enforcement issue. And if we just got, you know, tough on enforcement, we could figure this out. And there's another part of our population that says, you know, these are humans and, and we need compassionate and this is all about treatment and reaching people and, and helping them work through this. It seems like both of those maybe, I don't know, fall a little bit short. How, how do you react to those narratives? Think about how we got into this opioid epidemic. We began to see that there was one answer and one answer only for pain. Very complicated thing, pain. Very difficult to deal with. And it probably is more an art than a science. And it requires uh, tinkering, a doctor working closely with the patient and applying this. Well, how about some acupuncture here? How about you do a little bit more exercise? We'll give you some of these opioids, et cetera. Instead, we said all human beings, pain, all backgrounds, all situations, one pill. Well, to me, we're still in that mindset when it comes to this epidemic. What we really require is a community response, a community response to pain, which means a variety of ways of treating pain, bringing people out of their houses. Sometimes chronic pain is dealt best with simply being around other people. But then also when it comes to addiction and how to, how to deal with uh, law enforcement and addiction, to me, all of that's necessary and much more. There's no way – we should not be saying, well, we just need cops to, to bust people or we just need a whole lot more treatment facilities. I don't think either one of those alone will do the trick. And I, I think actually even together they're going to have trouble. They need a broader coalition and uh, people getting involved in this in ways that they're not used to anymore because we're so isolated. And that, I have to say, and so bringing those two together and then augmenting it with other people, other backgrounds, other experiences and talents and budgets and all that kind of thing, all of that is actually, I think, one of the most ex- – what's happening in America today. It's one of the most exciting things to watch, I find. I've been all over this country now talking about this – People invite me to come to speak in their towns and their conferences and what have you. And every place I go, what you're seeing is people forming groups to fight this. And in county after county after county, I think the county is pivotal in all this because the county is where is where you fund, we fund as Americans, the, the, the agencies that are most pounded by this epidemic, coroner's offices, jails, courts, foster children, libraries, all that stuff. Counties are forming, but they're coming together, bringing together people of all walks of life. It's PTA now. It's it's Chamber of Commerce and Kiwanis Club, coaches sometimes, college presidents, doctors, recovering addicts, drug counselors, cops, public, all these different groups in one association. Learning again, I think, how to work together in ways that maybe would have been second nature to Americans of, say, two generations ago. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, to watch. It's happening quietly. That's one of the things that's beautiful about it. The other thing that's beautiful about it is that it hasn't – was not sparked by some pilot project, you know, pilot study that said, okay, here are the 10 points, the 10 pilot pro- uh, points, bullet points that you need to do to combat that. No, they just start these things. These things have just been formed over and over and over all across this country uh, quietly. And sometimes they're stumbling. They're not perfect by any means. They're looking for response, for answers. They're trying to – but they're doing beautiful things. They're breaking down those silos. They're breaking down that old horrible political polarization that 24-hour news tells us is so important uh, we, you know, that, that we can't get along with anybody else to, because of their political po- points of view. They're, that You find those people coming together to work. Um, it's a beautiful thing to watch, and it's it's – going to take a while because it took a long time to get into this. But you're seeing this epidemic is really one of the great forces for change in America today. It's a catastrophe. It's a lacerating torment for thousands and thousands of families. But it's also one of the great forces for change because it's pushing us beyond that siloization, beyond those those walls, that those false walls that we constructed to begin to learn again how, how to work together. And, 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 and it's happening um, mostly at the local level, county level, what have you. It's, a, it's, it's really exhilarating to watch this. Um, and it, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's, it's happening. As a country, we're struggling to a degree with a conversation on race and ethnicity. I'm in my mid-40s. I think you're a touch older than me, but... I'm, 50, I'm 59. Okay, we, we both were alive during the war on drugs in the 80s. This was always a proxy conversation for race. I grew up certainly believing that 
you know, drugs, heroin particular, was not a problem in my community. I mean, this was going to be a problem in those places that had people that didn't look like me. I hear people pushing back saying, well, now we care about drugs because it's a white problem. Okay, I get that critique. But if you flip that around, how much is this now an opportunity for us to maybe find some common humanity that maybe was elusive to us in the past? In my opinion, this epidemic was not noticed, was hidden because it was a white problem. Because white people wanted it that way. (laughs) They were mortified. I've run into this very clearly. I'm all of the state of Ohio. Thousands and thousands of people dying or hundreds of people dying every year, thousands and thousands of people addicted and so on. I found five families during my research, five who wanted to talk about it, five. Think about that. And that's that's what helped keep it quiet, keep it, allow it to spread. That's that's silence. A couple of things. I think no doubt that this epidemic is the the only well, it's the epidemic that is the most uniracial ever in our history. That mean, meaning, or certainly modern America since World War II. That means almost all of the people affected are from one race, and that's the white race. It's almost, you do not see very many other people, Latinos, blacks, Native Americans, I would say, you do see. That's, that's a very big problem on Native American reservations. But predominantly, this is a white uh, problem. And uh, a couple things grow out of that. White families, frequently, I would say, in fairly red, fairly conservative, staunch red, staunch conservative areas, have seen their kids, their neighbor's kids, their high school quarterback, the pastor's daughter, uh, get addicted. And this has brought a change in thinking. Those were folks who very, for years, voted tough on crime as their motto. When it ever came to any issue dealing with criminal justice, it was throw away the key, more jails, etc. Now they're finding a little bit of the kind of the result of that is that their children, as one father said, it's either the street or prison. There's nothing else. I was like, yeah, that's right. And that's because that's who, who we voted. We vote essentially as a culture. That's what we voted for. People voted against that idea, of course, but overwhelmingly we voted for it as a culture. Now those same people are asking for a kind of a Christian charity and understanding that they did not display when it 25 years ago, when it was when it was not their kids who were getting uh, addicted. However, it's more complicated than that too. And I would say this: that I was a crime reporter. I started my career as a as a as a reporter in the town of Stockton, California, which was five six hours up the I five from from L A. and uh, overwhelmed by crack. Okay, very 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 bad crack problem. And I so I really started my career covering the crack problem. And a couple of things you could say. First of all, crack is viewed as a black problem, and, and it was, certainly was a disaster for the black community. But in Stockton, everybody, all races did crack. It was not, not one, one race. So it was never, you didn't see that uniracial aspect to the, to the thing. Um, nevertheless, at that point in our history, I think we were still, we still knew very little about the brain. It was people viewed as minority or drug addicts and who the hell cares about them. And so, but also here's the other thing that the crack epidemic was about that that was really fundamental in how we dealt with it. And that was that the crack epidemic was about violence more than anything else. It was, it created the kind of violence that was scary and relentless. It was out of control. The gangs, I remember this, that's what I wrote about for four straight years. Every year in Stockton, they hit a new homicide record. But it wasn't just homicides. It was relentless graffiti destroying any mom and pop business. You have to cover that stuff up every month. You're going to go out of business very quickly. It was drive-by shootings. It was carjackings. It was guys lining up at, at six in the evening to sell their crack. And, and going all night, helicopters overhead, bullet casings in the street. It was relentless in a way that people who didn't live through it really cannot appreciate. It was primarily the black and Latino communities of Stockton that were overwhelmed in that way. Everybody did crack, but it was sold in those neighborhoods. I can tell you, I do not remember one person from either the black or the Latino community coming before the council, coming to the police and saying, we need more treatment. Never once happened. It was always get these guys off the street. They're killing us. And they were. It was not a joke. It was a serious, serious uh, crisis that took place in many, many towns all across this country. 
it's not easy, just easy to say, oh yeah, this is just about race. It's a little, it's different. I, I can tell you Stockton is one of the most integrated towns in America back then. And a 40% white, 60% everything else. And I do not remember anybody coming forward and saying, dang it, there might've been one or two, but it was not the dominant cry. The dominant cry was, we need these guys put in prison. We need them off the streets. We're getting our lawnmowers stolen daily. We're getting bullets whizzing through our, our uh, thing. We have our kids joining gangs that, that were nice kids. All of a sudden, they become gang members, and then they're shot, and then they're killed. This happened. Oh, it, it destroyed neighborhoods. The violence is what destroyed. It was a drug problem, but what really was the key thing was violence. That was, And that is totally different from this epidemic, which is quiet. It's insidious. It's a narcotic kind of, you know, it has the same effect as it kind of puts you to sleep. No, you don't think it's happening. And so we've seen declining crime for the last in L.A. We have the lowest crime rates ever, you know, in Los Angeles and declining crime rate at the very time we're seeing skyrocketing overdose rates. That's pretty much the case all across the country with a few cities like Chicago being being really the exception now. That paradigm, that that situation is what is totally new. Uh, skyrocketing uh, overdose death rates and addiction rates and declining crime. And that is really that's where you get to understanding the, 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 the opiate. And one of the things that's changed out of this grew from the crack epidemic in Los Angeles and other communities around Los California. Cops began to realize that they were doing policing poorly. They had behaved as if the community was like the, uh, the enemy. Keep them at bay. Don't deal with them. We don't want to deal with you. We'll take care of it from here. L.A. was very much that way. And they began to realize that is a recipe for disaster. Community hates us, doesn't trust us, doesn't know us. We're not able to get information. And what you're seeing now is some of the great innovation in dealing with this epidemic is coming from law enforcement, coming to the idea that we cannot deal with this alone really taking the lessons of the crack epidemic and applying it to the opioid epidemic. We cannot deal with this this problem alone. We need the community as as allies. LA has been that way for a long time, long before this. But other communities are seeing, yeah, maybe, so you're seeing jails. Jails become places where they have full-time rehabilitation basic services, basic, and, and wraparound services. When the guy leaves jail, he goes into the community. The jailer kind of follows him with services to get him uh, on his feet a little bit. A total renovate, total radical revolution in, 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 in law enforcement. You're seeing that some of the most innovative stuff is coming out of law enforcement now when it comes to this epidemic, changing how they do, how they've acted, changing their approach to the community, wanting to work with instead of alone. It's again, it gets to that isolation versus community. Law enforcement understands that uh, fundamentally in many parts of the country, the most, the best cops I think do and, and are implementing that at the local, local level. And all that grows from this, this whole thing having to do with your question, like this whole transformation that we've had since the mid eighties up to the, like the last 30 years, say, uh, um, it's, it's a remarkable thing to, to watch, but the great innovation in all of this, I think a lot of the great innovations coming from law enforcement. I know there's a lot of people who are just hearing about you and this book for the first time, but this is going to strike a chord with them. If people want to get a hold of you, have the, have, have you come and speak in their community? We're going to put that on uh, our my website. website. My website is uh, samquinones.com. That's S-A-M-Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S.com. I have an email that is samquinones, the number seven, at yahoo.com, samquinones7 at yahoo.com. I'm also on Facebook. Twitter, the usual social media stuff, that kind of thing. I'm happy to talk with folks. One of the things that's happened has, since this book has come out is that I've been going around to town speaking an awful lot. One of the fascinating, great things I've done, I think, for me, is that I have done, um, I've been to all these small towns, towns where no author ever goes. I'm going to Bluffton, Indiana tomorrow. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bluffton, Indiana. I've never heard of it. It's near Fort Wayne. That's, those are the kinds of places where I'm speaking. It's a beautiful thing. I meet a lot of truly wonderful people doing that. But it's also this experience that no author has ever had, I don't think, that, that I've gone to, I don't know, 20 or 30 small towns, like Peoria and, 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 and Hendersonville, North Carolina, and, and Moorhead, Kentucky, and places like that, because that's where this epidemic's really playing out most severely, and that's where people feel most uh, unprepared or disarmed or unarmed, something like that. 
I read your book and I was really moved by it. It's a fantastic read. You're a great writer and you're a really good journalist. I mean, this is a Thank good, you very much, this is a well-written book. If I had one, one thing to one bit of feedback, it feels like there's more here. I wonder if you're working on something else. If there's if there's a, a yeah, a I'm trying coming. to figure. <laughs> Thank you very much for all those all those great uh, words. Really kind of you to say that. I'm trying to figure out what my next book is. Uh, I will tell you that I'm a little worn out on this on this subject. It's the only thing I um, hear you. Yeah, it, it, it uh, because it hasn't just been three years of writing the book. It's been three years of going around the, the country talking about it too. Um, and so I'm still not sure. I'm I'm a little worn out, honestly. But it still seems to me like my wife and I had this conversation before the book came out or as the book came out uh, saying that, you know, if you write a book like this, you can't then say, well, I'm sorry, I just don't have time to go talk about it. You have to be part of the <laughs> right. conversation, you know. Right. And I remember what it was like to have written two other books about Mexico that, that people I'm very proud of, but people didn't read, you know. So I remember what it's like when people don't care so much. So I, I want to be part of that. And, 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 and I love deeply love going to these towns, particularly meeting people who are working on this, meeting people who are forming these, these alliances and these groups locally to fight it. I think it's so exciting when all you see is the polarization in, in, in Washington, it's really depressing. And then you get to be able to see this at the local level, totally different world, totally different, you know, and I just love that. And so I'm looking forward to getting that to Bluffton, Indiana tomorrow. Um, but I still don't, I'm trying to figure out what the next move is. And I, can't tell you right now as we talk if I really know. We had that same experience because I, I, I get to do the same thing, go chat strong towns with people all over the country. And I, I think for anyone who is suffering from uh, the burnout of our national dialogue, the local conversations are so rich and so rewarding. I really identify with what you just said about that. Yeah, it's a big part of, uh, it's a revelation to me. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I turned off cable news. I, we don't have cable in our house. I can't same, stand that crap anymore. Same with me. I just, I just shut down cable. What, pay 100 bucks to dump, for someone to dump garbage in your living room? Yeah. Don't, I don't think so. so. Sam Quinones, thank you for taking the time to be here. I, I love the book. I love the conversation. And I'm I uh, very honored that you uh, reached out to me and we were able to make this connection. So thank you so much. Uh, on the contrary, Chuck, it's uh, really great. I love your podcast. Keep up the fantastic work. And uh, really, really happy and, and thankful that you took the time to talk. Very much appreciate it. Well, let's keep in touch, friend. If you ever uh, make it to small town around me, I'd, I'd love to uh, get in touch. And, and I'll let you know when I'm in Southern California again. Please do. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks you a lot. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.